out breaks. Global cost 
of moderately severe to severe pandemics is $570 billion, or roughly 0.7% of the global income. That's a lot of money. These costs associated with those factors related to the disease, not typically associated with addressing diseases themselves, are related to losses based on consumer reactions, labor and equipment shortages, and cascading failures in tourism, retail, financial, and other sectors. These losses are undoubtedly based, at least in part, on factors related to preparation. If the labor and equipment sectors have no advance notice of the disease outbreak, they are unlikely to be able to address shortages once an outbreak has come out in full force. That being said, a large part of the World Bank's estimates focus on consumer reactions. Given that news organizations and public health organizations are primary sources from which audiences get their news about disease outbreaks, the work those organizations put into communicating information about those outbreak, outbreaks becomes work of extreme importance. Cost benefits aside, having consumer reactions more closely aligned with actual risk in a given disease outbreak could lead to a closure of the perception gap, or at very least, a step in the direction of closing the perception gap. That being said, the matter is not as simple as recognizing the importance of these communications and closing the perception gap. Just as diseases are changing in the 21st century, we have an increasingly global, global society that means diseases can travel further and faster. News communications are changing too. So the last few decades have seen a significant shift in how news is created, covered, shared, and communicated around the world. So I'm going to get into a bit more detail about this, thinking about two disease outbreaks in specific. The 2014 Ebola outbreak, which I'm sure all of you remember, and the 2015-2016 Zika outbreak, which is to some extent still thing that's happening. And I want to mention that Ebola and Zika are definitely two very different diseases. They manifest themselves differently and they have different effects, but it is worth comparing the two. For instance, in an interview I did with a communication specialist at the CDC, she mentioned that Ebola and Zika are considered in the broad swath of disease responses that they consider overall, and included in this swath because they have this sort of iterative process for learning about disease communications and how to better them over time. They also include things like the hurricane responses last fall in um, Puerto Rico or in Texas. They're looking at outbreaks and crises very holistically, and for that reason, it is pertinent and relevant to think about the communications processes for these two diseases at the same time. So to illustrate the perception gap, I want to show you guys a graph, a graph of <laughs> Google Trends data comparing the Ebola and Zika outbreaks. This data is looking specifically at US audience searches for both Zika and Ebola. And you'll notice that there is a pretty big spike in Ebola searches as compared to Zika searches. It's relevant to point out that during the Ebola outbreak in 2014, four people in the United States had Ebola. And during the entirety of the Zika outbreak, and still to this day, over 5,000 people have had symptomatic responses to Zika. That's a big difference that is in contradiction to the search results you see here. So to sort of get a better idea of what people were looking at and thinking about, I decided to compare Ebola searches to flu searches during flu season in 2014. And I did this because the flu is relatively normal. It's something that affects everyone. And it is something that gets a significant amount of media coverage every year just because there's a push for people to get vaccinated and people are generally concerned about the flu. But if you look at the data for flu season during the Ebola outbreak, no one was really concerned about the flu which is a bit troubling because many more people got the flu that year. So I'm going to try to do the same thing 
feedback. More people are definitely paying attention to the flu during the Zika outbreak. There is a spike in February 2016, but if I look at the data another way, which isn't graphically depicted in case they are to make stabbing, you would notice that if you look at the entirety of the United States, most of that spike in searches and concern about it actually comes from the state of Florida. Outside of Florida, everyone was much, much more concerned about the flu, even though Zika has been an issue primarily in other southern states as well. So it's not Florida's specific issue, it's something that more people should have been thinking about. So at this point, I decided to look at how Ebola and Zika were represented on social media with an eye towards the visual. And in doing so, I decided to compare the CDC's Instagram coverage of the Ebola and Zika outbreaks because they have a very targeted strategy towards doing so with the Washington Post's Facebook coverage of those same outbreaks. And those are two different social media platforms, I get that. I did that for a reason, primarily one being um, every time I tried to, Instagram doesn't have the advanced search feature, every time I tried to scroll through to 2014, I crashed their website. So <laughs> that was entertaining. Facebook, for all of its flaws, has a much more comprehensive search feature. And generally speaking, if I look at contemporary social media coverage on the Washington Post Facebook page, the images tend to mirror what's on their Instagram page. Not always, but it's consistent enough that I figured for the purposes of analyzing images and looking for comparisons between the Post, which is a national newspaper focused on US audiences, and for looking at images that the CDC is primarily targeting towards US audiences, the comparison was legitimate. So the first set of pictures I want to show you relate to protective equipment and personality. You'll notice in the picture on the left from the Washington Post that we see a worker in protective gear carrying a small child through a labyrinthian, foreboding-looking place. The um, poster on the fence up there says suspect, and it's generally quite ominous. In the CDC picture, you'll notice an aid worker who has really, really tried to humanize herself. She's taped a picture of herself to the outside of her suit. She's written her name, Dr. Wong, on the front of her suit in big letters with Sharpie. And she refers to having to wear this protective gear as something that requires her to channel her inner scuba diver. There's a lot more personality happening in the CDC's approach to communicating this outbreak. The next picture I want to show you relates to protective equipment and safety. In the picture on the left, you'll notice that Sierra Leone has banned public Christmas celebrations because they have a lot more people getting Ebola. Fair. The picture shows a aid worker carrying a dead body through a poverty-stricken area. There is a shack in the background. And it's, again, generally foreboding. In the picture on the right, you see CDC staff, again, very concerned with protective equipment and gear. But there's a bit more personality to it. Again, they're addressing safety in a way that makes it seem like they are taking appropriate measures. At the same time, the caption says, CDC staff deploying to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa practice taking off personal protective equipment with chocolate syrup on their hands. The syrup helps to show if you contaminate any of your clothes while you remove the PPE. Chocolate syrup is something everyone identifies with, most people like it. And yes, we are trying to protect ourselves, but at the same time, there's significant difference in the tone and affect conveyed in the CDC's picture and the tone and affect conveyed in the Washington Post choice of picture at that time. So the next set of pictures I want to show you relates to objects, those objects specifically being the personal protective equipment. 
In the Washington Post structure, you see the PPE being used as a means for disposing of the deceased body. In the CDC's picture, you see the remnants of the PPE. You see clean gloves and boots hanging upside down on sticks, almost comically. And there is a person in the background, a person that is healthy. And the juxtaposition of an image that's a bit more comical, a comical, lighthearted approach to what is so severe with the very saddening and frightening picture of amateurs putting a body in the ground, it really conveys a different sense of what people might be thinking about when they understand what this outbreak is looking like in West Africa. And to that point, I want to bring up issues of otherization. So the picture on the left, the one that says no Ebola and then Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, is a 24 picture from Anthony England titled Hashtag No Ebola Map of Africa for the Geographically Challenged. On the CDC's picture, you see a person from Liberia standing against a piece of street art that says very explicitly, stop stigmatization, I am a Liberian, not an Ebola virus. And I would argue that this is extremely significant when we think about how U.S. audiences are understanding disease outbreaks. For instance, in an article for Africa Today, Sarah Monson examines the concept of organization during the Ebola outbreak. In the process, she emphasizes the significance of affective news coverage, especially in regards to audience understanding of a given risky situation. Monson writes that the media triggered Americans' fear and conceptualization of Ebola as other and African, sparking a discourse of panic and propelling the organization of Africa and Africans. Her analysis delves into how American media sources promoted the Ebola as Ebola outbreak as other scary and African, to the detriment of US understanding of the outbreak and highlights how fear is essential to health concerns. Monson used virtual ethnography to give rise to conclusions that the media still strongly influence public perception and behavior, perpetuating fear, othering, and discrimination. In contrast, the CDC is explicitly acknowledging the potential authorization of people in Ebola-affected areas, even after the Ebola outbreak has fallen out of public conversation. The post that I'm showing you right now, for instance, is from 2016. They're still trying to communicate this point. Their post directly acknowledges the distinction between the disease and the people closest to it. So now I want to pivot a bit and talk about the Zika outbreak. And to do so, the first set of slides I would like to show you is the Washington Post's representation of Zika in the United States. You'll notice that it's focused on celebrity responses. It is ominous in the context of pregnancy, lacking in detail, and that the person who looks to be pregnant in the middle picture seems to be a person of color. You'll also notice that there's a general emphasis on mosquitoes, which is not particularly helpful. Yes, mosquitoes are important to understanding how the Zika virus is disseminated, but a picture of mosquitoes does not really convey much meaning, meaning beyond health bugs. So, at least in the context of Zika in the United States and coverage there, it's not generally presented as as dangerous, even though US audiences could definitely and have contracted the Zika virus. Meanwhile, if you look at Washington Post coverage of the Zika outbreak in relation to South America, you notice that it's framed as a public health emergency. That emergency isn't related to the United States, even though we're looking at a national publication that is targeting audiences in the United States. Pregnancy is shaded, it seems ominous, it, and it presents Zika as a facet of poverty. Type of Ebola, we see posts for the sake of posting. 
They're updates, but they don't necessarily provide insight into how people can prevent themselves from getting Zika or Ebola. And they don't really pr provide in the post much information about what can be done. Rather, they're presented as updates about the place that is away. The insight that would be necessary for audiences to understand what's happening to them during the disease outbreak is not present. It's also hard to understand who the audiences are in these posts, rather than saying, oh, we're just informing people. Perhaps it might be relevant to say, oh, this is relevant to pregnant women, or this is relevant to people traveling to South America. In those searches I did, that wasn't really found. So as a comparison, I want to show you a picture from the CDC's Instagram page during the Zika outbreak. They show a white woman in a bright, clean, informative picture with a lot of information about protecting pregnant women and their fetuses. It's very, very targeted. In interviews, I learned that they very specifically targeted the primary amount of their Zika coverage to pregnant women. And I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to try to show you a social video because they need a few of those.
audiences, reporters look at U.S. census data in order to understand who they are reporting to. The census is very detailed and thorough and great. It's also not updated very frequently. There are many other sources of information that might provide more accurate, up-to-date information to reporters looking to accurately cover the concerns of their audiences. There are also larger considerations of monetary implications. So for instance, in the New York Times guidelines from this last fall, they mentioned that especially in situations where they have exclusive coverage or content, they would prefer that, that users from social media be directed back to New York Times platforms. This is fair, of course, the New York Times is a for-profit institute. At the same time, it's problematic to the extent that during an outbreak, when people are worried and concerned, they might not necessarily be clicking through to the link. They need as much information as possible in order to stave off Another thing that comes out of the API Cup report from the same time period is that the primary activity of news organizations at present is still posting links to content. There isn't much of a nuanced approach to audience engagement yet, which you actually find that the CDC is quite active at right now. The CDC is very targeted on effective demographics, as we mentioned before. They have an emphasis on getting as much information as possible to users. If you remember the Instagram captions that they had on those images I showed you, are pretty comprehensive. They put as much detail into those captions as they can, whereas the posts, Facebook posts don't really have as much information as they could have, especially given that you can put a lot of text into a Facebook post along with a link. The CDC also gets very creative. They employ skywriting, which is a social media that is pretty creative during the um, Zika outbreak in Florida. On Twitter, they conduct surveys to gauge what their followers are understanding and interested about. And they present a really behind-the-scenes approach to their work to increase trust from their audiences. All of that is incredibly significant. So to round things out, I would like to summarize my findings a bit. Generally speaking, US audiences are experiencing large perception gaps. Risk communication is also a news coverage concern. And it's a concern that is particularly important on social media given the scope and speed of social media. News organizations are primary sources of information, so the current landscape of social media-based news coverage is not necessarily addressing an extremely and increasingly relevant issue, that being that of disease outbreaks on social media. And audience engagement is a news practice, sure, but it is also a public health concern. Of course, all of this begs a few questions. What can we do about this? And I would argue that you, we would need more inclusion of audience concerns and engagement strategies, broadly speaking. More specifically, there need to be steps taken to incorporate risk communication considerations into audience engagement planning and practices in these organizations. Maybe there's a step at which we say, sure, this is what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. But if there's another Ebola outbreak, we do things a bit differently. And then we also need to make use of social media's targeting abilities in these organizations, especially in regards to public health. With all of that being said, I want to say thank you. Leave you with a picture of Rebecca, a bear who missed her children and went to West Africa to address the Ebola outbreak in 2014. <laughs> thank you. That was really interesting. Um, the Washington Post. Uh, 
uh, emerges as something of a villain in your presentation, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> um, and the, the reason they are villainous in, in some part is uh, because they are a for-profit institution, yes. right? And the sensationalism and so on is profitable to them. And then the CDC is more heroic and, and has public you know, concerns uh, at its part of its mission, right? I wonder if you could talk, uh, maybe complicate that, this, that a little bit, and this may be, on, be beyond the scope of your study, so it may not be, be fair, but and think about some of the political pressures on the CDC and how it negotiates those uh, and, and as it sort of tries to do the right thing, as it were. And I'm, I'm just thinking specifically in the current political climate, the CDC's been under a lot of pressure. They've been told, for example, you may no longer use words like abortion or transgender or, you know, like stuff, things like that. And I'm just wondering if those current political pressures from the White House play out in terms of disease uh, control, management, reaction, and so on. I think they do. They definitely play out in terms of access to budget. For instance, when I interviewed a communications person on the CDC, she mentioned that they were able to get from the government a significant budget to increase their coverage of the Zika outbreak and prepare plans ahead of time to address it. They knew it was coming, and they were able to use additional funding to really flesh out their social media coverage for the Zika outbreak. Um, it is something that they are actively concerned about in relation to my own presentation. For instance, I can't like officially cite the person I interviewed with because if I had done so, this entire thesis would have had to have been approved by the CDC's director's office, which would have been an interesting process. Um, and I mean, I don't want to bash the Washington Post to the British system. They do a lot of really, really great stuff. You should subscribe to them. <laughs> but at the same time, there needs to be an increased level of consideration. Most news organizations in the United States are for profit. So if we don't have a healthy not for profit or non profit model, model, we really need to go to for profit news organizations and ask, why are you doing this this way? You have a mandate to inform people, so inform people. And yeah, the CDC is a health organization and not a news organization. But their news practices are incredibly, incredibly fleshed out. They have a series of um, very interesting and fascinating workflows and pipelines related to how they respond to and plan for things on a day-to-day -day basis and what they do during a time of high risk. And um, in many ways, that sort of pipeline and work structure really mirrors that in the news organization, especially on the communication side. Well, so building on that, so um, obviously the profit motive uh, leads newspaper to, um, to be sensationalist, but what role does racism also play? In, in other words, um, a lot of it is about othering it. And, yeah. and so even if it weren't, even if they were not for profit, would they still fall into the same traps over here? Um, I mean, could you repeat the question? Yeah. yeah. So the question was about what role does racism and othering play in these sensationalist practices that are happening? In this case, the post yeah. is that correct? Yeah. So, um, I would say that it's definitely happening. I think if we look at the demographics of people working in these organizations in the United States, they are not necessarily the most diverse places. And in large part, issues of sensationalism and other could be addressed by increasing diversification efforts at these organizations, broadly speaking. I do think that it's a very difficult issue to address. Um, I don't know if I have a solution to how can we get rid of racism news coverage, which I did, that would be great. But um, it is problematic, and it's something that needs to be more top of mind than it is at present, especially when we think about developing countries. William? Could, could I ask a methodological question? Sure. And it's your, your, 
I know you're illustrating your larger thesis, and it's a very provocative um, I can't, again, another one I can't wait to read. It's going to be a busy summer. Um, but I just did a quick image scan, Google image search for Washington Post and uh, Ebola, mm -hmm. and found quite a range of images, a lot of which are quite intimate and friendly. And, and, and so I'm wondering, did you look at, did you tally them all up and sort of figure out what you thought was the representative image to pull, or were yeah. you looking for contrast? How, how did you do that? That's a great question. So when I did that, I did do Google search at first, but I really wanted to focus on social media. And, I, and when you look at a Google image search, it really pulls from their website as well. And so when I was pulling these images, I basically went through for the Ebola outbreak time period and looked at their Facebook images specifically. But they're not recycling from the, from the print? To some extent, they are. Um, the other thing about their website images is that they present more nuance because they have entire image galleries as opposed to on social media where they never really created albums or anything. They just like posted the one image for a given post. So I was looking at the social media posts specifically. They do have more nuanced coverage on their website, and it's worth mentioning, but that's really hidden away in galleries. And I would also point out that looking at images on a gallery on a in these bigger outbreak situations, 
there needs to be more acknowledgement towards really addressing that this is a significant concern is a great interest to audiences and taking heed of